Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Democrats are at something of a kind of institutional disadvantage here in the sense that they are the party that believes in government and that wants government to kind of work well and work efficiently. Um, if you're a Republican, then if people dislike the government, think it's dysfunctional, think that Washington is just a kind of bunch of corrupt scumbags, that actually tends to work quite well for your political appeal. You know, if your political appeal is, you know, we're the small government party um, who will kind of get rid of those people, um, Democrats can't really play that card in, in quite the same way. With Donald Trump trolling NATO and already appointing his second Supreme Court justice, Democrats could be forgiven for missing the era of Barack Obama. Even though his party hemorrhaged more than a thousand seats in Congress, state legislatures, and governor's mansions during his presidency. Fast forward to 2018, and the Democrats are in the throes of an identity crisis. Where to? Stay with us. This week's episode made possible by Elwood Thompson's, who I've always told you is the best market in Virginia, here at the top of Carytown. Elwood's success relies on the happiness of employees and its ability to build strong personal relationships within the local community. It strives to be a haven where you can go to slow down, escape from the hustle and bustle, and nourish your body and soul. Visit them at the top of Carytown at the corner of Elwood and Thompson Streets, hence the name, and at elwoodthompsons.com. Kindly joining us from London today is John Perdue, U.S. editor of The Economist. He's actually in London because our president, Donald Trump, is in London speaking alongside Prime Minister Theresa May. I was uh, trying to watch those pyrotechnics this morning. It sometimes seems stranger than fiction. Uh, how are you, sir? I'm doing well, thanks, Robin. How are you? I'm great, thanks. Uh, let me start off the bat. What were your impressions about that meeting? He gave this this almost this scandalous interview, was it, to The Sun, uh, uh, pillorying the whole idea of immigration, uh, knocking uh, Theresa May and Brexit and the whole strategy and everything. At the same time, he's being hosted by her. He said, we had breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, as I say many times with our guests who try to discuss this unprecedented presidency, it's, it's, uh, it's beyond surreal. It really is beyond surreal. And it's quite hard. Often analysts like me are in a position where people say, so what was the president thinking? Or explain this thing that appears to be contradictory to us. And then you have to come up with some kind of grand theory that makes all the pieces fit. But I, I'm something of a kind of chaos theorist when it comes to this president. It's really hard to make all the different bits of what he says and thinks um, fit together. Clearly, there are some strands that are uh, consistent, things that he's believed for a very long time on trade, uh, on immigration and so forth. But, but yeah, it was, it's been pretty chaotic. So as you say, the president arrived in the UK, the, pretty much the first thing he did was give an interview to the country's biggest tabloid newspaper, The Sun, in which he criticized Theresa May a little bit for the way she'd negotiated Brexit, said he'd given her some advice and she hadn't taken it, you know, praised her rival for the leadership of the Conservative Party, Boris Johnson. Um, he, he also waded into really the most kind of delicate question in British politics at the moment, which is on sort of trade deals that Britain might be able to do with other countries when it left the when it eventually leaves the EU, if indeed it ever does. And 
on that, he said, yeah, there's no way that America would be able to do a free trade deal with Britain while, while you're doing what you're currently doing. So that was pretty unhelpful, frankly, um, to the prime minister, I mean. Uh, and then at a subsequent press conference, he tried to clear all of that up, you know, dismissed some of the stuff that had been in the newspaper as fake news, even though there was a recording of it. Uh, and he went about praising Theresa May to the skies and talked about America's warm relationship with Britain, which I have to say is something that, you know, made my heart glow a little. There was this lovely phrase he used. He was asked about the special relationship, right? Brits think that they have a special relationship with America that goes right back to World War II. And he said that the relationship is the highest level of special. So, so that made us all very happy over here. It does not dispense with hyperbole, this president. I do have to ask you, though, in your feature story left behind on the uh, disarray in the Democratic Party two years almost after Donald Trump was elected. Um, I, I have one big question, overriding question. We're going into this uh, 2018 midterm election, as you nodded to in the election, um, in the essay here. You have some situations, especially out west, where there are more candidates than the party knows what to do with. The, the primary um, system has been chaotic. We are here in Virginia's 7th District, and Abigail Spanberger, who you mentioned as well, is looked as an, as an insurgent to take out a Trump ally in Dave Bratt. Does this party, though, overall— have a torchbearer, a standard bearer, a leader? It doesn't. And in a way, you have to go a little easy on the Democrats for that. I mean, as you know, the party out of power, the party that doesn't hold the White House, never has a single figurehead. Um, to the extent that Democrats do, they're the leaders of the you know minorities in the House and in the Senate, Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi. But they're not really considered kind of figureheads, right? They've been around for a long time. Um, Various people laying claims to the kind of leadership of the party, perhaps Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, some of the Democratic state governors, Andrew Cuomo, Jerry Brown. But no, there's there's no figurehead. And you wouldn't really expect one to emerge, I think, until the pres the Democrats actually you know nominate someone to, to take on Donald Trump. So a certain amount of the kind of chaos that we see at the moment, I think, is inevitable. Why hasn't anybody stepped up to, to even drop crumbs and hint to the effect of, well, I'll be running in 2020? Well, I think there are. I mean, one of the things that I think we will see in 2020 is that almost anyone you can think of at the moment will run, right? There'll be a whole load of senators, some of whom I mentioned already. I think there'll be some state governors. I think you'll see some, you know, mayors of uh, small towns, mayors of big towns. I think you may see some celebrities, you know, the odd businessmen get in there. You know, one of the Donald Trump has, uh, appears to have kind of ripped up many of the rules of American politics, right? And and I think one of them that he's ripped up is that Democrats have tended in the past to have somewhat orderly primaries. They're quite a well-behaved party compared with the Republicans. I think the next Democratic presidential primary, which obviously is a long way away, uh, will be you know unbelievably crowded and hard to predict. And you know somebody is going to, I think you know, sneak through, even though they begin with maybe only getting kind of 20% of the vote. It's, it's going to be a, it's going to be a real mess. I don't want to be too backward looking, but the PTSD of the 2016 experience, and I'm just, I, I cannot, I cannot resist the urge to ask you about it. As you know, I don't know if it was a rarity if Barack Obama is leaving office and, and the interregnum with something like a, an above 60% approval rating. In a situation leading up to that, where the economy is humming along, the stock market's doing well, unemployment is falling, he has handily won uh, two presidential elections in 08 and, and you know, 2012. Why wouldn't the party, whatever the party is, know enough to run the quote unquote incumbent? I mean, and I'll ask you this counterfactually. If it did get its stuff together and did run, 
run somebody like a Joe Biden? Would it have won? Would this whole period of hand-wringing and introspection and reflection about Donald Trump been completely unnecessary? That's the great unknowable, isn't it? I mean, I think you have to say that looking at where Donald Trump won, you know, those 80,000 odd key votes in states like Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, I happen to think Joe Biden might have done a bit better than Hillary Clinton there, but but it's really unknowable, isn't it? I mean, though, if you rewind a little bit more, I mean, a year before that, uh, you know, the primary, Hillary Clinton was viewed as this kind of unbelievably popular figure. You know, her approval rating was actually pretty high when she left as Secretary of State. She was deemed to be such a formidable candidate within the democratic field that you know, both in terms of money and in terms of experience and all that kind of stuff, that lots of people didn't want to take her on. Um, so it seems kind of incredible to, to think of that now, looking back at, at what happened. But, you know, she was for a while kind of seen as a good candidate. And, in a, you know, in some ways, in a kind of conventional ways, she was a good candidate. I mean, she won the popular vote. Um, she has a, you know, I interviewed her when she was uh, promoting her book recently. She's got a really formidable grasp of all sorts of areas of public policy. She's incredibly well briefed and so forth. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that Donald Trump proved is that, you know, politics doesn't work like that. You know, people like me who cover politics and cover policy like to kind of believe that the person who knows the most about, you know, pensions or foreign policy or, you know, tax is, is the person who wins. That That's demonstrably not the case in American politics. And, and I'd argue kind of not the case in other politics uh, as well. So should they have nominated someone else? Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's, it's you know, it's, it's fairly clear that they should now. Um, but it was, you know, Donald Trump's victory played out in the, in an extraordinary way. You know, those it was a slender margin in a, in a small number of key states. I think a different candidate could have done better. Here's where I struggle, and I beg your pardon, is this is the era of the quant and something like Wisconsin, which is still unbelievable to me that they didn't have real-time numbers or they, they tested the pH of the water to know that it could potentially be in play. I mean, much less certain corridors of, of the Rust Belt in Pennsylvania. I mean, everybody's jaws were really on the floor that night of the election, as I'm sure you can remember. Yeah, I do. I do remember it very well. I think you know everybody who was there uh, remembers. You know, we remember that election for a, for a very very long time. I agree with you. You know, they going back to Barack Obama's uh, victorious campaigns. You know, the whole thing for a long time had been how the Democrats had this incredible edge in data, in ability to turn out voters. Um, the Republican Party was miles behind. You would have thought, you know, if any of that were actually true, then they would have. Um, paid a little more attention to those those mid midwestern states. Um, it, it it all seems pretty incredible in in retrospect. I remember uh, driving that night while the returns were coming in, and Ed Rendell, the former governor of Pennsylvania, uh, he was on public radio, and his voice. I, he sounded absolutely funereal that some of these return numbers were coming in. And yes, she was going to be strong in Philadelphia and certain corridors around Pittsburgh and whatnot. But this, these numbers did not augur well, I mean, as a kind of an indicator for how she would do on the rest of the eastern seaboard. No, that's right. I remember thinking, I mean, I was one of the kind of herd of people who thought looking at the polling numbers that Hillary Clinton had a better chance to win than Donald Trump did. So I just want to kind of hold my hand up there and say, you know, I didn't say that it was it was coming. That said, I remember having a strange experience arriving at JFK Airport in America shortly before the election. And I was having a chat to a Customs and Border Patrol agent, you know, the guys who kind of stamp your visa if you come in as a as a non-citizen, as, as I do. And um, normally they're very, you know, 
unfailingly polite. Um, you have a little chat, but it doesn't get too kind of personal, never really gets onto politics. This border agent said to me, I, I explained that I was a journalist. You know, he, that's obvious from my, my kind of visa that I travel on. And he said to me, you need to get on YouTube and check out Hillary Clinton's been doing the most kind of terrible things. And he basically pointed me towards a whole load of um, conspiracy uh, sites about, about Hillary Clinton. Uh, and I remember at that point thinking, huh, you know, people are willing to believe some pretty extraordinary things about this candidate. Not not just kind of people, but you know, somebody who wears the kind of uniform of the US uh, Customs and Border Patrol. There's something very, very odd going on here that I haven't seen before in American politics. And so institutionally, a party, whoever, I mean, we don't, it's it's not like, you know, the 19th century and the Gilded Age or the, the 20, uh, early 20th century, even with smoke-filled halls and deal makers and people trading sides of beef and, and fiefdoms and whatnot. Who is the party? Who is the institutional backdrop? I mean, we knew with Debbie Wasserman Schultz, for example, that there was a bit of an obstruction campaign maybe to kind of uh, suppress the possibility of a Bernie Sanders uh, nomination. But again, from polling, I'm assuming some modicum of kind of strong centralized power with a party, especially after it's been in office in the White House for eight years. But they completely whiffed on that, whoever they was. Yeah, so you're right. The, the whole thing, kind of what a party is, has, has changed a lot, right? There were a whole load of forces that play into that. A rise of cable news, social media, and people's kind of increasing reluctance to uh, to kind of join social organizations and so forth. So it used to be the case much more that the party had a bit more of a kind of top-down command and control structure. Both parties did. And that that's that's gone pretty much. Who is the party? So I think you have to think about it in terms of the party elite, um, you know, elected representatives, people who work on campaigns, and those kind of folks. Um, and then there's a slice of people who follow politics very closely. Um, and But they're a minority, really. It's really important for you know, people like you and me who, who are kind of political nerds, follow this stuff closely, you know, maybe report on politics. We have a big tendency to overestimate the extent to which other people out there are like us, right? So about 10, 15, 20% of Americans follow politics closely. For the rest, you know, they're not paying a whole load of attention, right? So uh, when you get into that question of kind of who is a Democrat, you know, what do Democrats believe? When you take that kind of big uh, group, people who self-identify as Democrats, their, their beliefs are a little bit kind of all over the place politically. So the party activists are very clearly kind of liberal uh, and they have a strong sense of kind of liberal uh, ideas, liberal values. When you get into people who self-identify as Democrats, you get into a whole different world. And I think that's a very important thing to recognize as the party thinks about you know, where it needs to go, you know, who it needs to win over, what sort of person it should run as a candidate. So, so just briefly, Robin, it's a kind of a illustration of that. There's this wonderful survey called the American National Election Study, which comes out every election year, or mm-hmm. rather, the, you know, the field work's done every election year. And they poll a lot of people and they ask them a lot of questions. And it's really nice because you can see change over time and that kind of thing. But so in the American National Election Study 2016, um, they one of the questions they ask is, you know, do you think that to be truly American, you have to be born here? And thirty percent of white Democrats um, think that you do. So I saw that, and it was it, absolutely striking. You would not have expected that, assuming that Democrats, of course, were a monolith. And 
And uh, as you wrote in your essay, if I, if I can quote because it's germane to this, any attempt to write a hillbilly elegy about liberal America quickly runs up against the problem that it is easier to generalize about Republican voters because the groups that make up the party are bigger and have more in common with each other in terms of ideology and identity. Heavily Democratic areas include, for instance, white, wealthy, liberal Santa Monica in California, a land of electric scooters, poke restaurants, and dogs with their own Instagram pages, and the more socially conservative African-American heart of the Mississippi Delta, one of the most concentrated areas of rural poverty in the country. Native American reservations lean Democratic, as do Hispanics in rural California, middle-class black professionals in suburban Atlanta, and white college professors in Iowa. No single place can capture this variety. It is a good thing that the Democratic Party appeals to such a diverse bunch. It also makes it considerably harder to define who or what that party stands for. Yes, so I think that all politics is identity politics to some extent. You know, there's this big argument that goes on, oh, the Democrats do much too much identity politics. I think Republicans do a lot of identity politics. Um, I think one of the difference is that Republican identity politics works a little better. So when the president starts criticizing um, immigrants, when he talks about Mexico sending rapists over the border and so forth, um, there are a large group of white non-college uh, voters in America. Uh, and when you can kind of signal to them, as the president does very effectively, that you're on their side and that you're going to put their interests first, you know, that's pretty good politics. The problem, I think, for the Democrats where it comes to identity politics is that their coalition is different. It is much more fragmented. They have The Democratic Party is made up of lots and lots of different smaller interest groups. Um, and so you have a problem there, which is the more you try and appeal to those interest groups individually, so the more you talk about, say, your policy on undocumented migrants, you risk sounding to all the other people in the coalition like you're not really focused on them. So what very often happens um, when Democrats give speeches, when they're appealing kind of to a national audience, uh, is that those speeches become like a kind of roll call of democratic interest groups. You know, you saw this a lot in 2016 with Hillary Clinton. You know, you could almost wait and tick off. She would talk about, you know, the disabled Americans, you know, kind of gay Americans, Hispanic Americans, African-American Americans, uh, and so forth. And, all, you know, all of that is really good. You know, it, it's important that America should come to terms with being a diverse country uh, and so on and so forth. The problem is I don't think it's hugely effective in terms of kind of political rhetoric when you want to build a coalition that can take on uh, uh, take on Donald Trump. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to John Perdoe. He is U.S. editor at The Economist magazine. He has a uh, really great feature this week on what is wrong with the Democratic Party and how it, it hopes to reinvent both ahead of um, the 2018 midterm elections, hotly anticipated, and the 2020 rematch with Donald Trump. I'm looking at a map of the 2016 Electoral College, and it was, uh, again, 306 uh, to Trump versus 232 to Hillary Clinton. And you can literally drive from Miami, Florida to the northwestern tip where Idaho and Montana meet and not hit a single blue state. And that, I think, speaks to what you had in your essay, that the Democrats lost sight of the fact that this is much more about territory than it is individual votes, popular vote. That's right. I think Democrats feel a real sense of unfairness at the moment when they look at the election system. And I think with some justification, you know, Democrats keep winning the popular vote, both in the House, um, in the Senate, in the White House, and yet that doesn't translate into power. There's a kind of unfairness there. 
and Democrats are pretty cross about it, particularly when um, winning the popular vote then means that the other party gets to put a couple of justices on the Supreme Court. But yeah, I think Democrats do need to think a lot more in terms of kind of territory than in terms of people. And that really plays into the big argument that's going on in the party at the moment, or at least within the kind of party elite. Some people think that the way to prosper electorally is just by getting the base kind of as excited as you can. And that tends to lead towards more radical policy proposals. So universal single payer health care, you know, universal basic income, uh, abolishing ICE, that, that kind of thing, Robin. And then on the other hand, I think you have people who uh, would call themselves more moderate, who often represent you know, states where democratic hold on power is a little more tenuous, places like kind of Colorado. And these folks say, actually, you know, people who argue that what you want to do is be more uh, more kind of pure in order to excite the base and turn them out have got it, have got it dead wrong. You know, what you really need to be thinking about is kind of marginal voters in places like Colorado, you know, Arizona, you know, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. And these guys are not up for the kind of full-blooded, um, you know, borderline kind of socialist proposals that might go down well in Massachusetts. So there's a, there's this huge argument going doesn't on. Doesn't that the party alienate now. the this is this might sound very obvious to you. Doesn't that alienate the flank of the party that is more amenable to say a Bernie Sanders siren call? That no, you so should that, absolutely fight for these things. And and it's it's us versus them. And if you break away the party, you risk something akin to what happened last time. No, I, I agree. I know this is why this is such a live argument going on. There's also a moral dimension to this argument, right? There's an argument if you are more in the kind of Bernie Sanders uh, position here, and you know a lot of people are in the party. That you know, what's the point of politics really? Is it to kind of maneuver so that you can uh, win elections and kind of sell your principles and kind of triangulate? They talk a lot about kind of Bill Clinton in the '90s and and some of the kind of policy failures there. Um, or, or is it to kind of stand up for what you believe in and kind of argue for the things you really believe in and, and, and then kind of win power and make them happen? Um, so so that's, you know, it's a real argument within the party. It's a real live argument. I think a very hard one to uh, to solve. And the people who are on the other side of that say, well, you know, kind of hang on. We've tried in the past, you know, running on a kind of activist activist um, platform. You know, George McGovern did it. You know, a couple of Walter Mondale did it. It's been a disaster for us in the past. Why do you think that this strategy that has failed our party in the past is going to work in the future? And then the argument you get back from that as well, you know, look at Donald Trump. He's kind of proved that being an extremist doesn't put the electorate off. So that's why I think it's such an interesting time to be looking at the party right now. You know, I see in this you noted that Democratic presidential candidates have won the popular vote in four of the five Five, past five presidential elections. Democrats have an advantage in fundraising so far in 2018. Crisis? What crisis? And I, uh, my impression is that, for example, um, with the Republican Party, the Senate majority leader, Mitch McConnell, he was just a master tactician. He didn't spend too much time sobbing over the fact that John McCain, for example, lost to Barack Obama handily in 2008. He knew he had his eye on the ball enough to say, guys, let's concentrate on state houses, uh, the governor mansion, state governorships, um, state legislatures. And and the stat that keeps throwing, getting thrown around is, is even though Barack Obama handily won those two elections and he was clearly the popular leader who could bring about the, the unity among the disparate constituencies of the Democratic Party, the Democrats as a whole institutionally lost something north of 1,100 seats in state houses and governor mansions. 
Right. So this, I think, speaks to that point that we were just talking about. You know, should the Democratic Party now be just focused on kind of power or should it be focused on, you know, arguing for the sorts of policies that you know, lots of democratic activists think are needed to kind of transform the country. Now, I think I'd argue, looking at those numbers, you know, looking at Democrats' position in state houses, looking at the, you know, very few governor's mansions the Democrats hold, that they really need to sort of adjust their priorities towards winning power, even if that's at the expense of kind of compromising on, on principles in some places. And in some cases, it's just a question of kind of running candidates who are appropriate for the district or for the state. And there, I think Democrats, you know, things are looking a little bit uh, more hopeful for them. I mean, I, I think you've seen a kind of amazing variety of Democratic candidates uh, running in the midterms and, you know, in other elections in November, you know, plenty of veterans, lots of kind of female veterans. You, you mentioned, you know, one of my, the candidates I'm most intrigued by in your district, Abigail Spanberger, I mean, former CIA officer. Um, I haven't, I keep meaning to go and watch her campaign. I think it must be so interesting, right? Very often when you're making a pitch in politics, you talk about all the things you've done in your career and why that allows you to be, you know, super well qualified to, to represent folks. If you're her, you know, presumably you, you can't really say what you were doing, right? Because it's all classified. So I'm just really intrigued to see how that how that actually happens on the stump. And yeah, we've discussed that before. No woman has ever held that seat. A Democrat has not held it since 1971. And as you noted in your essay, the Democratic Party was going through convulsions coming out of the 68 convention then. What a Democrat was in the early 70s in the South, the former capital of the Confederacy, is very different than what, what it has to be today. Yeah, the Democratic Party has obviously changed a huge amount in the past few decades. I mean, one of the ideas you often get talking to Democrats is that their their party has kind of stayed in the same place in recent decades while the Republicans have kind of wandered away to the extremes. And, you know, the, there's some truth to that. You know, there's a phrase that political scientists like when talking about the parties about asymmetrical polarization. Um, but, you know, Democrats certainly haven't stayed in the same place. Um, you can see that on questions like immigration and gay marriage, where there's been a huge change of position in a relatively short space of time. I mean, you only go back to 2008 when Barack Obama ran for president, you know, opposing gay marriage. He said, you know, marriage is between a man and a woman um, before his position evolved. But yeah, I mean, I think that the Democratic Party as it currently is, is basically kind of 50 years old um, this year, that, that its kind of creation story started at the 68 convention in Chicago, where you had this big face-off between the more kind of traditionalist, you know, perhaps socially conservative uh, union kind of blue-collar wing of the party and the new kind of social movements that the Vietnam War opposition um, gave rise to. And you, you see the kind of clash of, I call them the cigar faction and the hair faction. And you see them kind of clash in, in 68 in Chicago. And actually the cigar faction kind of enlists the Chicago police to hit the hair faction over the head with with uh, with batons. Um, and then since then, we've had this kind of evolution of the party. You know, the relative importance of organized labor has declined a bit. The you know, importance of the kind of social movements has increased. Um, and and here we are today. Um, the Democratic coalition is, is I mean, I, th I think it's helpful to think of it as being like a mosaic, whereas the Republican Party is built of these kind of large breeze blocks. So Democratic Party, the, the, the task is harder in some ways. You know, they've got lots of smaller pieces that they have to kind of integrate and keep happy. Um, it, it's, it's a hard, you know, even though we're used to, 
loads of articles about the Republican civil war and the idea that Republicans are attacking each other the whole time. You know, I think the task that kind of people like Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer have of kind of managing the Democratic coalition is, is harder in many ways. Here's the, here's the thing that I'm also struggling with is you go back to the other big bang uh, pre-68, maybe 30 years before that in FDR and the New Deal. And uh, the other element of PTSD and people coming out of that and this guy being so popular. And I remember uh, visiting all manner of people across the country who had that old black and white portrait of FDR up up in the kitchen or in the in the parlor in their house. Um, how is it that that culture of kind of safety net and everything didn't didn't continue on into uh, the present with healthcare? If I just spin that forward, this idea of universal Medicare or Medicare for all, Medicare itself is really popular, and you'd have to pry it from somebody's cold arthritic hands, whether you're in Alabama or Manhattan or California or Utah. And yet, I think some of the people that are getting their health care diluted under this administration and under the Republican majority are still kind of uh, they're they're okay with giving that a pass. They 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 don't listen to kind of the left and saying that you know no, we want to restore it and give it back to you, but for us. So where did that social consensus behind safety nets kind of go to? I'm quite persuaded by the thesis of a of a historian called Jefferson Cowie. He wrote a book called The, the Great Exception, and it comes down, in his view, quite a lot to immigration. Um, and the point that he makes is that in the 20s, 1920s, you get a series of laws in America that restrict um, immigration quite quite harshly. And then following on from that, you have a period, you know, first in the 30s and, and then, you know, with Lyndon Johnson a little bit later, where Americans seem quite content to build safety nets and to redistribute money. And then you get a couple of decades from, from the kind of late 60s, 70s, 80s, and, and you know, following on to now where that consensus goes away. And he makes the argument that actually, you know, the thing that changed is that you get relatively uh, relaxed immigration laws in, in the mid 60s. Um, and that essentially, mm. you know, it, it's the rise of the foreign born share of the population in the US, which kind of takes away some of the social consensus around safety nets for everyone. And, and it you know, one of the things that's very striking about uh, voters who support President Trump, like the kind of Tea Party folks, is, uh, as you say, they're very much in favor of Medicare um, and Social Security for them, but not necessarily for other people. So th this is, you know, if this thesis is true, it's deeply depressing to people like me who'd like to believe that, you know, we can all come from wherever we come from and kind of get along fine and, you know, we can all be Americans. But there's a very large share of Americans, who, you know, who don't feel like that, who think that, you know, true Americans are people born in America and everyone else is, you know, is slightly kind of second class citizen. So I'm pretty persuaded by that, that thesis until until something else comes along. What do you I mean, what do you does that sound plausible to you? Well, no, there's a tremendous amount of trepidation right now about kind of hitting a wrecking ball at that at that legacy and, and taking for granted that those people stitch together naturally or they'll come around around a person right now. And as as evidenced by this victory of, um, you know, Alexandria Ocasio in New York in the Bronx, who turned out and, and flipped one of the most easily uncontested seats for the longest time. Um, and the party's wondering, well, do we have to redefine and go to the left? Do we have to make it more mainstream to um, 
discuss Medicare for all as, as something that could approximate something you might see on the party platform at a convention. Uh, this tremendous amount of consternation about it, and yet the party leaders still remain Pelosi and Schumer, and uh, the path of least resistance seems to be just, just go with what we know. Yeah, I think there's a really interesting reason why you have such an uh, ancient, I, I don't mean to be rude, but you know, somewhat elderly uh, leadership of the Democratic Party. I mean, uh, Chuck Schumer is 67, Nancy Pelosi is 78. You know, they're both impressive people in their way. So I don't mean any kind of disrespect there. Mm. Um, but uh, one of the reasons I think that Democrats have somewhat elderly leadership is that as soon as you have a leadership election in the Democratic Party, you're into very complicated trade-offs between the different interest groups. So, you know, imagine you were to replace Nancy Pelosi in the House. Um, now, would you replace her with an African-American, perhaps, or perhaps, you know, a Hispanic candidate? Would it be important that she was replaced by a woman? Um, would it be OK to have a man uh, and so forth? Um, having the leadership go by seniority, you know, who's been around for the longest kind of gets you out of any of those slightly kind of awkward awkward trade-offs. Um, so there's a kind of party interest in keeping these folks in their position that, that it avoids a kind of internal uh, fight between the different bits that make up the coalition. I, I'm not convinced it's in the party's kind of best interest long term. And clearly with Nancy Pelosi, you know, the amount of uh, kind of spite that is directed at her f from Republicans and the way that Republicans like to tie Democratic candidates to, to Pelosi, I think is a pretty good indicator that despite her you know, political skills and fundraising ability and, and so forth, um, sh she's not helping her party. But I think that, you know, if you think about it in that terms, it helps to explain why, why those folks are still there. John, where's the bullpen? Where's the farm system? I mean, is this, a, is this something that the DNC should be doing? I mean, weren't there all these people that were inspired by Obama and, and Biden to a lesser extent? Um, you see the, the droves of women stepping up to kind of run in this election out of a, out of a sense of a, you know, they're revolted by the outcome with Donald Trump. But is nobody kind of out there recruiting and organizing and building uh, leadership? It's, it's really no different than me looking at a baseball team. It gets broken up. There, there are all the people there. They might do a mega trade for prospects and draft picks in the future. From my kind of naive eyes, I always thought that a party, especially after it held the White House for eight years, uh, would have had this sort of system in place. You could take that for granted. So I, I mean, there's an, a sort of optimistic answer to that for the Democrats and a pessimistic one. The optimistic answer is that, as you say, this has been this incredible kind of upswell in political engagement in the US. I mean, that lots of people have on the left have been kind of you know, depressed by Donald Trump's uh, success. Uh, but there's something quite energizing about the fact that so many people are going out to protest. You know, a lot of people are now saying they want to run run for Congress. Um, Democratic primaries are kind of crowded. You've got lots of kind of grassroots organizations like Indivisible that sprung up after 2016. So there's a lot of kind of activity there. And, and a lot of people are saying, you know, what, I want to get involved in politics. I want to stand. I mean, one of the things I did when I was doing this report was go and talk to Emily's List, who, you know, the organization whose kind of mission is to get more um, Democratic women elected and particularly elected to Congress. And, and one of the things that the head of Emily's List told me was that in a couple of years before 2016, they had 900 women um, write to them and say, you know, we, we, we're kind of interested in standing for Congress or for, you know, for office in, in the US. Uh, in the two years since 2016, almost two years, they've had 36,000 people write to them and say, 
you know, we want to stand. So yeah. I think there is, you know, there's got to be some talent in there somewhere. I think the thing that's that's kind of different is that it's not the case that the party is really managing this. I mean, there are lots of different organizations that are, but the Democratic Party is, you know, is not the most important one. It works with them a little bit. Um, so there's some coordination there. But 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 you're right to say that, you know, kind of when you look at it, it's, it's hard to discern that, that there's a kind of cunning plan or that, you know, everything is kind of particularly well organized. I think it's not. I guess it's a left-handed way of saying Mitch McConnell kind of quietly took care of the blocking and tackling and the plotting and uh, the, the 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 dividing and the gerrymandering and everything that this took. I mean, you remember with with such a uh, you know poker face, he said that there's not going to be a candidate considered in the last year of the Obama administration for the Supreme Court, and you know it was a it was a gambit that paid off. It certainly did pay off for him. I mean, I think Democrats are at a something of a kind of institutional disadvantage here in the sense they are the party that believes in government and that wants government to kind of work well and work efficiently. Um, if you're a Republican, then if people, you know, dislike the government, think it's dysfunctional, you know, think that Washington is just a kind of bunch of corrupt scumbags, that actually tends to work quite well for your political appeal. You know, if your political appeal is, we, you know, we're the small government party um, who will kind of get rid of those those people. Um, Democrats can't really play that card in, in quite the same way. Um, so there is there is something of a disadvantage for them there. Uh, John, I, I, I want to look at the Ocasio-Cortez insurgency out of New York and the um, the, the the real upset in New York's 14th congressional district, where she defeated the incumbent uh, Democratic caucus chair, Joseph Crowley, who I believe was a candidate who was looked at as an alternative to Nancy Pelosi. That's how powerful and entrenched he was in the Democratic establishment. She had spent just $194,000 to the Crowley campaign's $3.4 million and yet beat him nevertheless. I wonder, though, how scalable is that example? Could you take her and campaign her in North Carolina or Ohio? She is very idiosyncratic to the Bronx and, and that story there. And, and she resounds with, with kind of urban uh, women and mothers and, and the, the lower blue-collar class. But it, it, it doesn't do them anything in these states that they've struggled to consistently hold. So there's part of her candidacy. She's clearly a very good candidate who excites people. I mean, she has all Some the central casting appeal, the, the, the video right. of her bartending, her youth. She's 28. She's everything you would think on paper the Democrats would want. And yet you hear mumbles, mumbles from, you know, the Israel lobby the other week. Well, is she more amenable to uh, the, the, the BDS campaign and sanctioning Israel? And then that speaks to the broader difficulties that the Democratic Party would have as espousing her as kind of a national figure. She's also very photogenic and there is a whole load of research that says people, voters trust people who they find, you know, to be kind of physically attractive more than they, they trust other people. So that that helps. I mean, the, so when she won, there was a big debate. Those who wanted to push the party further to the left said, look, you know, Democrats can win on a platform that is, you know, the, uh, the, the Sanders platform I described earlier, you know, universal single payer health care, universal basic income, abolishing ICE. But then it's also the case that, as you say, that you know the Bronx is a you know heavily uh, Latino uh, NY14 is heavily Latino uh, Hispanic. If you were to interpret that result or predict it, kind of purely in in sort of ethnic terms, if you would say, okay, you might expect if. Uh, voters in the Bronx were given the choice between a kind of aging white male and a younger um, uh, Latina woman, that they would choose uh, 
Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. And indeed, you know, that's what happened. So, I mean, it's really hard to disentangle those two, right? Were voters excited about her because they liked her ideas? Um, were they excited about her because voters like to be able to identify with the people they're voting for? You know, I, I lean towards the, the latter idea, the idea that people saw something of themselves in her and, and like that, um, because I'm, I think it's easy to overestimate the extent to which voters are kind of following people's kind of political positions on on, on, uh, on various policies. Um, so uh, run her in North Carolina, I, I, I'm not sure. No, runner as kind of a coattails person to the extent that the party doesn't have this rock star that they can tour around the country right now. There's only so much of Obama and Michelle that you can kind of spread around. Uh, <laughs> you're trying to have people out there to energize people to to, to come out. Ideally, and you know the way Obama turned, I, I forget. Didn't Obama take Iowa twice? Didn't he take Georgia once? I think he lost Iowa the second time, but I have to go back and 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 check that. Yeah, they. They do need somebody exactly like that. I mean, the, the question is, <laughs> who is that person? I, I mean, I think there are some really talented Democrats out there. I, I was down in Texas doing a little bit of reporting. And Texan Democrats are very excited about Beto O'Rourke, who's running against Ted Cruz. You know, people, I've talked to a kind of uh, uh, an old political science professor at one of the universities down there who said he had seen, you know, JFK campaign, Clinton campaign, Barack Obama campaign. And said that Beto O'Rourke is in, you know, in that kind of category. Wow, he's still he's still down in the polls. And he's um, running up know, against Ted, down. Ted Cruz, and, yeah, and, he, and 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 Texas last chose a Democrat as governor in 1990, as a U.S. senator in 88, and as president in 76. The ascent of Jimmy Carter. Right. So there's been this whole idea among Democrats for ages. You know, we've got to turn Texas blue and Texas is about to turn blue. And it's one of these things, you know, you look at the numbers and and the number of kind of non-white voters in Texas and you think, well, hang on, you know, this looks really promising for for Democrats. And yet, you know, it always seems to be, you know, five, you know, 10 years away from from happening. Um, I'm very interested in in that kind of demographic uh, theory of voting, you know, the idea that you know, there's this rising democratic majority, you know, as the country changes from being a kind of majority Anglo country to to something else, you know, Democrats will sweep all before them. And it always seems to take slightly longer to arrive than than you might think. And we're seeing that seeing that in Texas at the moment. Nevertheless, you know, I do think Beto O'Rourke is a really outstanding candidate. It's going to be very interesting to watch that race. Uh, close us out, John Perdo. You're saying uh, what's left to win power? Democrats will have to do things that make them feel uncomfortable. Explain. So I think one of the things you have to think about in politics at the moment, or Democrats have to think about, is that are they more interested in being right or, or in winning power? I had a really interesting interview with Jerry Brown, governor of California, when I was putting this together. And Jerry Brown is somebody who, you know, to my mind, at least, has been right on an extraordinary number of things. You know, he was a serious environmentalist before that went mainstream. He was somebody who's been worried about, you know, big money in politics for a really long time. He's taken very careful, uh, taken very good care of California's finances, you know, spent very carefully. Bequeathing California, um, you know, a budget surplus. Its rainy day fund is full, and so on. And yet, Jerry Brown's also a kind of a guy who's who's uh, tried to run for president a bunch of times and, and failed. Um, so I'm not convinced that being right and being in power are the same thing. And I think Democrats. You know, I, I talked to a Democratic senator while I was doing this report, and he sort of put his head in his hands and said, "It, it always feels 
that for us, the choice is between some version of Bernie Sanders and some version of Bill Clinton. And I think the party's going through that kind of agony again. You know, the kind of soul of the party, I think, would like to head off in a Bernie Sanders direction. But I think, you know, a lot of people know that that is not necessarily where where they're going to take power. Uh, and so you have this repeat of this debate that went on in the 1990s before Bill Clinton came to power. Bill Clinton did a lot of things that made Democrats at the time, you know, deeply uncomfortable. A lot of the signaling uh, on things like criminal justice, some of the tough on crime stuff, you know, the the signaling on welfare, uh, welfare and work, for example, welfare, all that stuff, deregulating the financial uh, industry. And Democrats look back on that with kind of horror, you know, the effects of some of those policies, they, they really, really dislike. And I think, you know, I think kind of rightly so in most cases. But I think it's that kind of really uncomfortable territory uh, for Democrats, that's that's where power lies. Um, so, you know, I've no idea who the party is going to nominate uh, in 2020. I really don't. And anybody who tells you confidently that it's going to be X or Y, you know, you should just discount that. But I think you want to be looking for somebody who has an ability to take the party onto territory where it's not wholly comfortable, where its activists are not wholly comfortable. Um, I think, as I say, in politics, kind of being right and winning power regrettably, are are not the same things. John Perdot, The Economist Magazine's U.S. editor, uh, thank you so much. Uh, Everybody must read his thoughtful feature story this week's magazine on the Democrats' past, present, future. Uh, I really appreciate your joining us. Thanks so much, Robert. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Catch us and rate us passionately on both NPR One, it's a great app, and on iTunes at fullderadio.com. We are Big Tent triangulating left of right center middle a great society offering podcast listeners everywhere fair new deals i'm robin farzad back with you next week Ah!